so uh we're just gonna do the intro and then sure yeah then and then talk to each other like people yeah i guess all right first time for everything welcome to the uh, well I am Brandon hold on hold on hold on i gotta take him my, my retainer <laughs> Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I am Anson Mount. And Anson, you have called this emergency session of The Drop. Why have you gathered us here today? I have. Um, as our regular listeners know, we have started doing these segments called The Drop, where Brandon and I just uh, share what we've been watching, hearing, reading, because those are conversations we normally have anyways. And we just thought uh, we would clue you guys into it. and Maybe you find something that you like. And... Uh, every now and then, we like something so much that we dedicate an entire episode to it. And this is one of those moments. I um, This this past weekend is a holiday weekend here in, in Canada. And uh, we, as a family, decided we were going to go down to the American side of Niagara. Uh, we get all the way to Niagara and realize we have left our passports at home. So I know. So I took Dara and Clover to the indoor uh, water park. They had this huge indoor water park tented on top of the Crown Plaza Hotel. And uh, drove all the way back to Toronto, got the passports, drove all the way back. back. I'm pissed off. Dara's not, uh, you know, a uh, yeah. shining bunch of flowers at this point. And uh, she plops as she's trying to handle the baby carriage she plops clover into the front seat and <laughs> clover's like hi daddy <laughs> i was like you having fun she's like yeah <laughs> and, and that all made up for it uh, right yeah so we um we made it we made it to niagara and uh we missed uh the the comedy show i had tickets to uh but then the next night i was like damn it we're going out we got a sitter um, I'm, we're going to go see a movie. So I looked up and, you know, wait a minute was, <laughs> to interject at this point, you're Clark Griswold, you know, we're going to have fun. Damn it. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Because this is a family exactly. vacation and we're doing it. You're going to have fun. <laughs> and, um, and you know, the movie listings these days, uh, it's it, especially when you're, when you're not in large cities that have art houses, it, 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 it there's not a lot. And, uh, but there was this one title I hadn't seen before called Out of Darkness. And um, I clicked on it and saw it only had one showing time. And I was like, oh, because when you, when you see that, you know, it's, it's one of three things. It's either, um, you know, a, a classic movie re-release where, you know, the theaters know there's going to be at least a select number of people that, that love that movie that'll get their butts in the seats or a couple of screenings or it's a niche film like a bible movie or something like that or it's the little movie that could and um so i so i looked it up and i saw that it was billed as a prehistoric or stone age horror movie and i immediately thought to myself okay how do you when when Death is an everyday possibility, like it was for the cavemen. What, 
how do you make something horrific? <laughs> how, do you, how do you turn that trick? And so I, uh, I was like, okay, well, there's got to be something interesting here because somebody's putting money behind a distribution. So uh, we went and saw it and I will be damned if they didn't figure it out. Yeah, first of all, I I, I couldn't I, I couldn't go to the bathroom. <laughs> because there were, it was just it was very tightly drawn and the performances were fantastic, great cast. Uh and once I st things started clicking into place, and by the way, we're no we're doing no spoilers here, but at a certain point we are going to transition into spoilers. So for right now you're safe, but we'll let you know when we're going to get into spoilers. Um, at a certain point when it started clicking into place, what was happening? I was like, oh my god, that is brilliant idea for movie, and. Uh, I immediately thought I was like, I can't wait get it, to get out of this theater and call Brandon. <laughs> he has to see this, but it is so up his alley. And we literally, we have not spoken since Brandon went and saw the movie at my urging. And so I'm as curious as anyone, Brandon, what did you think? Um, I loved it. And it's immediately as soon as it started, I mean, I I'd seen the trailers for it, uh, and some coming attractions at Alamo here. So I was aware of it. But I had somehow forgotten about it. I remember that's how short my memory is. I saw the trailer. I was like, that looks interesting. And then I immediately forgot about it until you uh, messaged me and said, you've got to go see Out of Darkness. And I was like, oh, right, right, right. I do. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, same here. There was only one screening per day at, at the Alamo. Anyway, there's a few other theaters in New York showing it. Um, and the only one we could get to was the... Uh, sensory friendly showing that Alamo does so the volume is a little lower and the lights are left slightly up a little which <laughs> it was fine the movie worked regardless yeah. it's not the filmmaker's fault but it's just kind of funny that a film that takes place in so much darkness <laughs> had kind of a washed out screen over on the sides it kind of it didn't blow the movie but um, I don't know why I'm getting into technical stuff first because that has nothing <laughs> to do with what the filmmakers did of but, course, it ruins the movie because you're like, "Where's my, uh, where's my shrimp tacos?" And my, uh, I need my, I need my micro brew lager over here. Bring it to me. Hey. Okay, oh, cavemen, cavemen, yes, cavemen. Hey, not not all guys that wear flannel and a beard love IPAs, but I do. I do love IPAs. Um, uh, no, but I, I mean, I loved it, and and of course, you know, knowing vaguely what it was about, it was right up my alley. Uh, I like horror films and I like anthropology. So uh, this is where they cross over. And and immediately, I mean, as soon as it started, I realized like, well, of course, of course, this is where horror films belong um, because life back then was scary. And I think also it is where a lot of our modern day horror has its roots and we kind of forget about it because now we have electric lights and there's nothing hunting us. 
And so we, we don't have the same fears, but we have them still biologically. We have them genetically. And I think a lot of horror films try to tap into that, but it's just such a distant uh, paleolithic memory that we don't, it's hard to, it's hard to relate. What? No, that's probably why, it's probably why we have horror movies. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. And it starts off and the film starts off with a story told around a campfire. And the campfire is, you know, see, they're Homo sapiens. This is the uh, Paleolithic era. It takes place 45,000 years ago. And it starts off with, uh, oh, we should say something about the language. The whole movie is subtitled. It, it takes place in a language that the filmmakers invented with a linguist, apparently uh, based on Bosque, roughly. It's the uh, language they, they based it on. Um, so, it starts off with a small, very small group, I think five people around a campfire. And it starts off with basically a warning of like, you know, one time we uh, went someplace that I thought was going to be great and it wasn't. And you realize like, that's not a fear most people have nowadays. But back then, every horizon was an unknown, like, I don't know, do we have to move? You you realize they only moved because they had to. There was they were following herds. There was competition, and it, the film does a great job of uh, setting you in that world of man. At night, it's pitch black. You've got the fire, and you've got each other. That's it. You know, you have no information. You know, there's no. Um, you can't go to your iPhone and check the weather report. You have no idea what's about to happen tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, I, it was, a, and, and then before we get into the spoiler part, um, yeah, it's everything that horror films are about. It's about darkness. It's about the unknown. It's about, um, uh, it's, it's, it's about the stories we tell ourselves to explain the things that we can't explain and where our imagination kind of fills in those gaps and tend to actually um, sort of terrorize ourselves even further by virtue of our ignorance of not knowing okay. what's out there. So we make up uh, the worst possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. I think you. I think you hit it right on the head. And that, you, at, to your point about the 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 feat of inventing a language for this film, I, I don't know if you noticed, but after the single card credits. Um, the scrolling credits began, you know, credits tend to go in order of seniority or sometimes importance or, but the scrolling credits began with the linguist. I didn't notice that. Fo followed by the archaeological consultant. And I was like, <laughs> wow, that is, I bet you, I will bet money that has never appeared in any credit sequence in the history of filmmaking <laughs> which tells you it's got it's some there's something special about the movie there's something that that is uh haven't seen before i think i mean i looked up his imdb it's they're touting it as his first movie but it's not uh andrew cumming is the director and he wrote it with ruth greenberg that's right i think Oliver he Kessman. came up with the story with Oliver and then Ruth Greenberg uh, scripted it. Okay. Okay. 
he's he'd made a few other things before, but you know how um, they publicize movies. It's it's uh, more exciting and sexy to say first time director. Like, well, I doubt it. <laughs> um, actually, going to a no, you know, he's made uh, before this uh, payback TV series, boxer short, beneath short film. So maybe this is his first, uh, you know, full full feature standalone feature. Well, that's another thing is, is, is I thought to myself, could you imagine how difficult this pitch was to investors? <laughs> you, go, you go into the room and you go, okay, so here's our movie. We take a handful of actors over to the Scottish Highlands. There's no sets. We're going to dress them in animal skins and there's some in the woods. It's something and it's crazy. <laughs> oh, like, and no, you, oh, and everyone's speaking gibberish. That we have to subtitle. Speaking, yeah, different language, and and the investors go, oh man, that sounds like a good. That sounds like a good investment. <laughs> no, um, well, so so it was a feat, I have to say, to get um, to to get this off the ground. It was, of course, helped by the Scottish Film Fund and the equivalent of the UK uh, Film Fund there. So uh, uh, I think that it it that was probably the lion's share, and and. In many ways, uh, I would assume that they pitched this as the first Scottish story. Mm. If you can imagine. Yeah, that's right. probably... Did, did they actually say in the movie where they were? I don't remember. I don't think they did uh, because they didn't know, but I would assume since they said it, but th- since they shot at the Scottish Highlands um, and it's uh, based on all the European language, I would, I would assume that... Um, that is, it is at least what they told the investors. <laughs> at least what they told the, the Scottish Film Fund, you know. Uh, it's um, and because they did become across a body of water to get there, I assumed that that was the English Channel. Oh, I missed that part uh, about crossing the body of water. I think that was there. Yeah, yeah. but it was, you know, it, it makes sense. The timing is right. Forty-five thousand years ago would have would have been around the time that Homo sapiens were starting to push. As the ice retreated and they were pushing into you know further and further more sort of remote parts of northern and uh, western Europe, um, yeah, and it and the and the highlands have that feel, yeah, of a, of a new, still forming land because there's not there's no trees, mm-hmm. um, it it doesn't look like it would be teeming with life, uh, which is part of the plot of the the film mm-hmm. is that they're trying to figure out how to how to to uh, eat in this place. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, that was an early thing they pointed out. The characters point out is they their strange um, fear of any forested area. They like to stay out in the clear where they can see everything around them. So these valleys full of trees were where there was darkness and they couldn't see very far were places that they were naturally afraid to to go into, and the landscape. And the weather <laughs> did so much uh, for this film's atmosphere, uh, dread and horror, not trying to say anything bad about Scotland. Uh, and the music, which was fantastic. It was just simple. I'm looking for the composer's name right now. Uh, uh, but the music was just uh, these very sort of primitive sort of grinding and honking sounds. I think it was probably bowed 
metal yeah or something and really unnerving and really kind of set your teeth on edge the way a good horror soundtrack should um and for i'm not sure this is worth mentioning uh i would say for a horror film that deals with some uh, uh graphic violence it's not particularly gory there's one no. scene. There's one scene yes, that they kind of shoot. One. That they shoot in the shadows. And they don't linger on it. It's not that kind of horror film. Uh, it acknowledges that something incredibly brutal happens to one of the characters, but it's not the kind of film that relishes in that kind of stuff. I'm not even sure I would call it horror, although it has that structure to it. I saw a couple of review- reviewers refer to it as a survival thriller, which I thought was pretty accurate. Yeah, I think it's that too. I, I I think what makes it a horror is the unknown presence, which becomes a bit um, mythologized in their imaginations, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, to, and yeah. into something that isn't human, into something that is like like no other creature that they've ever come across, and uh, they're naturally afraid of it. And the film does a good job of putting the 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 viewer into their mind and allowing your imagination to run run with theirs right yeah so you're with yeah. them fearing as they do fearing what they fear until instead of a bit of a big like spoiler warning right now or <laughs> <laughs> until <laughs> no let's not do spoilers yet okay no okay. Take- we're gonna we're gonna there's gonna be a mo- clear segue moment <laughs> which i'm hoping you will edit in some sort of visual and we'll have one of the well-pied uh, <laughs> cues come in. Um, but uh, before we do that, I just want to shift over to the cast real quick, e. who I, I thought were just tremendous. Uh, very well cast. Um, Chukamodu, who you've seen in uh, Game of Thrones and a bunch of other stuff, um, as well as, as many others. But uh, Sophia Oakley-Green was, mm. I would say, the lead of this film, and she was just great absolutely um a revelation i think she's gonna have a tremendous career her emotional range her sense of reserve as an actor um her she has that ability to carry a film to carry the audience into her experience of things uh very impressed uh the other actors are um, Lola Evans, Luna Mwezi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Arno Luning, who is extremely interesting yeah. as the sort of medicine man. Uh, Rosebud Malarkey, my favorite name ever. <laughs> and, uh, and Tyrell Malonga. Uh, the whole cast deserves to be uh, congratulated for this achievement. One thing that I thought of while watching it is because so much so much of it takes place in darkness and so much of it is just about uh, their emotions, their paranoias and fears and uh, sort of the, their inner conflict they have with each other. It actually occurred to me sort of halfway through the film, this could almost be some sort of experimental black box theater, you know? Not taking anything away from the cinematography and the music, which is great, the filmic aspects, which are fantastic, but 
it's so much just about people trapped in a dark space and how the fear works at driving them away from each other and the interpersonal conflicts and stuff. And I thought like, this is basics of drama, you know, not, yeah. not beside being a good horror film. This is a, this is the, you know, the essentials of drama. Yeah. It is kind of Greek. <laughs> right. Right. Because the stakes are real simple, you know, and uh, the plot is kind of like what plot? I'm not really sure. I mean, people go into a strange land and encounter the unknown. That's kind of the plot, but um, the stakes are very simple. It's life and death, and it takes yeah. place in a world where that's absolutely uh, not just plausible, but just you know the, the facts of the matter back then. You know, so it, it was life and death. No one's going to come help you. All right, should we go into spoilers? Sure. All right. Let's do the segue. Segue, 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 segue. Bloom. Pretty music. I was going to put up a graphic and stuff, but I'm just going to have you do that. That's it. That's our transition. <laughs> okay. Spoilers. Saves me time. For those of you who have not seen Out of Darkness, this is your last warning. I would highly suggest that you click this off at this point, whether you're listening or watching. And go uh, to the near, nearest theater you can find showing Out of Darkness and then come back to this after you've seen it. Because there are some things we're going to say that will spoil the entire experience. Yep. I promise you that. So, now that we can speak freely. <laughs> oh my God. What a... I mean, it's one of those movies where like, oh my God, why didn't I think of that? That is so brilliant. What a great idea for a film. And and also completely in line with their research and and the historical record. It's not, I mean, there's obviously some imagining, the whole thing is imagined, but it's based on something plausible that, some version of it probably happened, um, which is drum roll. Uh, the thing that's stalking them, or the thing the thing that they think is stalking them, is not a monster. It's a Neanderthal who's actually not stalking them, uh, who is scared of them and defending itself. And this is something that probably happened around. A lot, you know, between 50 and, you know, or 35 to 70,000 years ago, as Homo sapiens pushed into Neanderthal territory, there were these conflicts. And of course, sometimes there was some interbreeding, and now we all have Neanderthal DNA. But for a while, not all of us, not all of us, not all of us, many of us. I do. I have. I do. Yeah. yeah. Most Europeans, because this is where this is where this this mixing was happening, was mostly in Europe. Um, So, you have the you have Homo sapien and Neanderthal clashing, and I'm sure they didn't always, but in this story they do. And I'll let you explain the part that made them think they were under attack. The, so, what, what the the Neanderthal thought they were under attack, or they no the the, the Homo sapiens the, are the Homo sapiens yeah be, well well people go people go missing. And it, and it does seem like they're being stalked um, by these strange sounds and and uh, um, they're terrified. But 
what I found really, really gratifying about the script was that they found a way to to show af- after the, the after the dust had settled and they showed that um, the the Neanderthal had just been trying to help. Mm-hmm. It it the monster of the movie was not the Neanderthal. The monster in the movie was the protagonists. It was the humans. Well, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Because they ended up hunting the Neanderthal into extinction. Um, the ones that they didn't breed with, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I, f- I found that so uh, such a well-cared-for ca- t- part of the script, of, of such an important part of the script, that I actually found myself thinking... I'm wondering, was there an earlier version of this idea that was told from a Neanderthal point of view and they were unaware of what was haunting them and it turned out to be humans? That would have been an interesting way to go, but it would have been too obvious, I think, in that direction. Also a little more difficult because I think as, you know, it may be harder for an audience to relate to Neanderthal, even though they tried in things like uh, Clan of the Cave Bear and Quest for Fire, famously, uh, which this film is in that a little bit of that tradition of trying to put you all the way back there, you know, and denying you familiar language, denying you uh, a lot of what's familiar. In this case, the people were more recognizably homo sapien. And I think that actually is where the script does something very perverse because it absolutely wants us to identify with the homo sapien because we're homo sapiens and you know they're just trying to survive and there's some monstrous thing out there trying to uh kill us and then when it's revealed that what it really is is someone else's territory that you've moved into that's when this film goes from ancient horrors into something a little more updated uh which is xenophobia, the fear of others, and <laughs> not recognizing that we have more in common with one another than we have indif- indifference, and that you let fear dictate all of your reactions, and you become an unthinking brute. Yeah, and it shows up in the dialogue that when they're ta- talking, they're calling them those, she was calling them those things, mm-hmm. and the boy was saying, they're like us, and she's mm-hmm. saying, they're not like us. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, it came. I, it didn't. It came. Uh, you know, it was brushing up against, kind of hitting the uh, nail on the head a little there. But they didn't linger there, and they just—it's a mm-hmm. passing bit of dialogue. Um, what did you make of the very, very end with the all those piles of uh, buried dead? Um. Well, I mean, the, the, they were burying their. The, the people we saw killed mm-hmm. or, or they killed each other. Um, are you taught, but are there, were there more? I didn't know. There notice. were more. There were more. There was, uh, so, so the big surprise here is that, you know, our protagonists are, you know, lead us to believe, they believe and lead the audience to believe that they're fighting monsters. Turns out to be Neanderthals who are not monsters. It turns out the Neanderthals well, were trying to help uh, in, in some capacity. And then at the very end, after all the, you know, the the <laughs> the killing happens, and they discover that the Neanderthals honor their dead, 
They perform rituals. They bury them. And then there's this wide shot at the end with, I think there's at least 12, maybe more, of these rock cairns uh, that are covering dead bodies, They and most of which have to be other Neanderthals that we never met. Yes. Yeah, I think that they... Well, I mean, the the humans would not be of this area, so they would... So they probably learned that burial right by seeing these grave sites and deciding to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got the impression, I'm trying to, I was trying to get the uh, Neanderthal backstory. So here's my question. Uh, Heron was the little boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually a girl um, that they kidnapped and took away. Why did they take her? Do we have spe- was that ever speculated on? Um, well, that the Heron believed that they were they were feeding the child. They, they they believed that the child wasn't being cared for because it was he was starving. The one that goes missing, I can't remember at what point. Uh, what's the incident surrounding the very first loss amongst them? Who's the little the little boy Heron? Uh, really? Suddenly. I can't remember how that happened, actually. I would have a little blank spot in my memory. They're out in the foggy woods, I think, and then suddenly... You no, know, when Heron when disappears? Yeah. Is, it, he's, they're, 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 by the, they're around the fire out in the uh-huh. open, and they're hearing this thing uh-huh. go around them. And as they're holding their spears, looking in all directions, suddenly something oh, that's pulls right. him into the dark. Right, just snatches him. And so what yeah. do you think the Neanderthal motivation was for for that? I believe them. I believe that they that they saw this boy who was, was skinny and mm. not looking well, and they're like, let's take they're clearly not feeding the child. Let's take the child. Interesting. No, I think you I think you're probably right. Because if it wasn't aggression, they would have killed him. They didn't kill him. They yeah, they, no. they, they, they they took him back and were feeding him. That's why I'm wondering why at the end when we see all those extra graves belonging to people that we haven't met yet um if there was something if some something had befallen that neanderthal group and they felt like they had to restock their numbers a little bit maybe, maybe. They, uh it could I mean, which it could be both you know like we're going to take this person mm-hmm. and feed them because we're getting perilously close to uh extinction <laughs> yeah now that yeah. I say it out loud, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. Uh, they felt their uh, their numbers dwindling. They felt in peril because there were so few of them. I think they were trying to augment their numbers uh, a little bit. And that last shot with all the those rock cairns, I think, was showing like, oh, the Neanderthal here are are on their way out. And that may have been the last of them. I think the the, yeah. I think the, the film is implying it could be the last of the, Ander- the Neanderthal or amongst the last of the Neanderthal. Of the, Ander- the last of the Neanderthal. I also liked how um, when all was revealed, how the title of the movie took on a completely new meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it wasn't like out of the literal darkness, that it was out of ignorance. It was the loss mm-hmm. of innocence. Right. right. And and that, did you notice that the, the elder man and the elder woman in the the movie they were adam and eve mm-hmm. his name was aden and her name was abe oh my god yeah. no i did not notice that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, Adam now, and Eve. Now I feel dumb, but yes. Um, right, and it's the burial of Ave that they makes the Homo sapiens realize that the Neanderthal are uh, advanced. Advanced. Yeah. 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 And they were. And they were. They were right on par with us. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. Um, they, the, and this is interesting. I learned this um, by reading the book Sapiens. Uh, that they had every they had everything we had. They had inventions. They had jewelry. They had fire. They had clothing. They shelters. They they you know they hunted the same way we did. And so the in their and they had more than we did. They actually they were bigger than us, stronger than us. So why did we win? Is the question. And well, that answer to that i think oh do you want you 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 tell me no you 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 take a you take a run at it well the the answer that's proposed is that the one thing that they probably did not have that archaeology supports is that they did not have mythology and therefore they did not have a story that allowed their tribes to grow in number so in in other words we're we're apes apes to this day the largest number of chimpanzees ever been found together is it's under 150. And neuroscientists say that our ability to associate names with faces as humans tops out at about 150. This is why this is this goes into business structures, right? And business philosophy. Um, and so how did the how did then did we form nations? Well, we formed nations through stories because we formed larger, you know. This tribe of 150 people, we could do battle with this tribe of 150 people over here. But hey, oh, I notice you worshiping the sky god too. We worship the sky god. Oh, wow. Okay. We know these fuckers over here, they worship the earth god. We should go kill the earth god Get people, em. right? Right. And then, and then you develop royalty, you develop kingdoms, you have nations, you mm-hmm. have countries, you have money, which is paper. You have stories. And then you have intellectual property, and then you have lawyers. And then- <laughs> yes. yes. So we were able to outnumber them through believing that our tribe was larger than it should be. Interesting. I I wouldn't disagree with the word of that. I'm, I think that's right. I think I take a bit more of a, you know, neurological approach, which is that the, the thing that we do as super, super social creatures is very special and not very many animals do it. Um, I'm going to geek out here and talk about uh, neurons, but uh, there are, human beings have a cluster of all the, all the nerve cells in the brain are the same. There is the same neuron everywhere. They're structured in all kinds of ways that provide uh, pattern and Specials, you know, specialty groupings of these things, but it's the same cell. Except for in the prefrontal cortex, there is something called uh, van economo neurons or spiral spindle, sorry, spindle neurons. And they've only been found in three animals us, dolphins, and elephants. They're not even in chimpanzees, they're not in killer whales. This very specialized. It's the supergroup sociability. And what that means is kind of hard to put into words, but 
animals, the, the super group, the three of us, have this ability to look at one another as assets, as survival assets. And this is the crazy part, not necessarily for the individual, for yourself, but for the group. So things like sacrifice, things like taking a hit for the team wouldn't occur to a chimpanzee, most likely. Um, <laughs> now they will defend, they will defend their territory. They will defend mates, but voluntarily letting themselves be injured because it might be beneficial to the group is a very special way of thinking. Uh, it, it means forecasting way into the future and uh, doing the and weighing whether or not this risk you're taking is worth uh, the survival of not just not just your offspring or your parents, but your uncles and nephews and anyone else who might be in the group. Uh, that's that's very uh, that's special amongst us. And because we could do that, because we had that subtlety of thought, it also allowed us to do something else that the Neanderthals never quite got a handle on, which was division of labor. It was this understanding that, oh, you're not very good at hunting. Well, what can you do? Like, well, I like to make things with my hands. I like to, I like clay. Oh, you're the potter now. You, you make pots because we need those. And we branched out and let every person kind of fill in, uh, become specialist at one part of survival, of the survival game. And I've heard it described as the Neanderthals plateaued because each person was an island to some extent. They were all extremely capable. Uh, maybe as an individual, more of a jack of all trades and could kind of do everything to some extent, but they never got into uh, super specialization. And I think that has to do also with the mythology and, uh, you know, there's no room for that. If every man is an island, you know, every person has to be able to make their own tools, make their own tools to make their own spears, make their own clothes, make everything. They were a little, I just don't think they were socially, quite as socially sophisticated. And that's what, and that's why we're here and they're not. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I you, never thought about it that way. Yeah. You, uh, we're quoting from Sapiens, and you and I read yeah. this book. Uh, show it up for the. It's Stephen Baxter's Evolution. Yes. Which, <laughs> it's not the evolution of Stephen Baxter. <laughs> so, this is an imagining. Stephen Baxter wrote this book that starts off uh, 80, no, 65 million years before present and then traces a. Uh, basically one genetic strand up until present day, which might be the most ambitious idea for a book I've ever heard of. You know, like I'm going to tell a 65 million year old family's history. And so every chapter skips forward another couple of million years and you see the progeny of whoever, you know, uh, was in the last chapter and see what became of them and what new species they developed into. But I was going to read one paragraph because this is what we were talking about. And it's kind of what this, what out of darkness is about. This is 31,000 years before present Western France, 
So this is his imagining of Homo sapiens running into Neanderthal. Oh, yeah, I remember this part. Yeah. 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 So Jana, Jana is the name he gives to the Homo sapien here. Jana sat on her ankles and peered straight into the creature's eyes. They were dark globes hidden under the great bony brow ridge that gave her kind their name. Jana was 12 years old, and so, as it happened, was this bonehead cow. The similarities ended there. When Jana, where Jana was tall, blonde, slender, and supple as a young spruce, the bonehead was short and squat and fat. Strong, yes, but as round and ugly as a boulder. It's kind of mean. And where Jana wore close-fitting clothes, of stitched leather and plant fiber, with straw-stuffed moccasins, a fur-lined hood, and woven cap, all the result of specialization, the bonehead cow wore simply wraps of filthy, well-worn leather, tied on with bits of sinew. Look, bonehead, Jana said, now raising her fist. Look, mammoth. And she opened her fingers to reveal the little trinket. The bonehead squealed and stumbled back, making Jana laugh. You could almost see the cow's slow mind working. The boneheads just couldn't hold it in their heads that a bit of ivory could look like a mammoth. To them, an object could only be one thing at a time. They were stupid. Well, did you, the, the part I found even more fascinating, the part before they meet, when he finds her hut, and he walks in, and he's completely freaked out. Right. Because, because there's a sense of order. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Right. Because right, right. everything has, he'd never seen, a, he'd never seen anything have intentionality. Mm-hmm. Like that, that everything had its place. It was swept. Mm-hmm. Um, it was to see things laid out in a line freaked him out because that's not natural. Mm-hmm. And I think if I remember correctly, this, it's, I think it's even the same chapter where they go into a they go into the Neanderthal caves and there's this this is in the movie too this is also an out of darkness there's this um fear of the Neanderthal because well they they're not like us first of all but second why are they hiding in caves why are they so weird why are they acting like this and you realize they're hiding from you <laughs> they're trying to get away from you actually <laughs> because I mean because the Neanderthal saw what was happening these homo sapiens were coming to their territory and they couldn't compete with them so of course they were terrified and I'm sure their natural instinct was to hide and run yeah sure sure sad this has become a eulogy for the for the Neanderthal poor guys there were a lot of different species in this line you know, there was not just Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. There was mm-hmm. there was Homo. What? Uh, oh, it goes. There's so many. They, there's a new whatever. Denisian. Yeah, there was Homo florensian, which is just recently discovered on an island. Can't remember exactly where, but they they died out surprisingly recently. Yeah, that that and they were like they were like tiny. They were they were they called them hobbits in the past. Hobbit, yeah. Itty bitty little people, mm-hmm. like small, much smaller than pygmies. Yeah, it's it's not clear, and it's honestly above my pay grade. About, um, there are all of these Homo 
group that had something to do with each other and some of them died off and a lot of them blended and uh, became homo sapien. But the Neanderthal was a distinct group. They were, that was kind of the last big division where there were groups of hominids and Neanderthal, which were very different. And it's not clear. I don't think anyone really knows what happened to yes. uh, the Hobbit man and all these other, you know, the thing that's hard to fathom is that we're talking about such a massive time scale. The metaphor I like to use is uh, we have so little, such little evidence and it's so scattered throughout time and space. It's, it would be like someone flipped 12 random frames out of, let's say, The Wizard of Oz and set them on a desk and then asked you, tell me what this story was. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're just like, right. well, um, uh, well, hold on. Which one came first? Like, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Can you put these in order? <laughs> no, that's up to you. Makes sense after this. <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, we find all of these physiologically different hominids, and it's not. We kind of know who won in the end, but we're not really sure um, who might be a part of the family tree that ended, and which parts yes. may have merged back in again. We don't have enough. Uh, we don't have enough evidence. We don't have enough frames in the story to tell that that to tell that such a detailed uh, part of that story. So. Cool, man. Well, I think that about does it for me. Hear anything else? Well, I'm going to go ahead. We could we we didn't do this at the front end, but Good I'm job. going to go ahead and tell you what where I've been very quickly. Okay. Uh, it was Sharon's 50th birthday back in end of January, and we planned uh, this part of this podcast is going to be filed under Brandon did something real stupid again. Um, I spent about four or five months uh, putting this trip together. We're going to go to Sweden and Denmark and Iceland. And we went. It all happened. And your story at the beginning reminded me of this. Um, so, man, I was very proud of how well I'd organized this trip. I spent forever. I want to make sure that everything went absolutely flawlessly. And then the night before we were going to get on the plane, I'm checking into my flight. Passport information. Expired. Oh. So, uh, no. expired three weeks ago. Oh, And no. I had a heart attack. Uh, that was a very bad night. I had to reschedule. Not all, all, not everything, but almost everything last minute. Now, luckily, the biggest parts of the trip were, were fine. Like the middle, ender part, I'd have to move those. I just had to move the beginning part of the trip. Uh, and also pay a lot to get a passport turned around in like 48 hours, which I don't recommend. Don't do what I did. This is, let my life be a warning to others. Check your passports. Make sure this doesn't happen to you. I couldn't believe I had spent that much time like dotting every I, crossing every T, timing everything out man i knew everything except that except maybe the most important thing so anyway after all of that mess was over 
We go to Sweden, have a great time, go to Denmark, have a great time. And then on the way back, stopped. I'm going to give you a hint. I have just come from the land of the ice and snow, from the midnight sun where the hot springs flow. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Iceland, baby. Yes. And yeah. that was my first trip to Iceland. It was great. Uh, where all did you go in Iceland? Did you stay in Reykjavik or did you drive around? I, we didn't go to Reykjavik at all, which we passed through it one night, but we mostly drove around to the south tip and went to Vik. We only had three days. It was yeah. pretty quick. And well, you've been was, before, hadn't you? No, I've never you been to Iceland. Been, you hadn't you been before? Oh, my. No. No. And oh so we, it, was a, it was a quick trip. Uh, it was dead of winter. So everything was buried in snow, very high winds. I'm glad I saw it that way, but I would like to go back and see it again some other time when uh, it's not so cold. But uh, I'd have a lot of things, lots of things to say about it, but I'll just say the most exciting part was Icelanders look at volcanic activity the way you and I look at the weather. And like to us, it's a very big deal and it's scary and novel. So we don't have any experience with this, but they do. So they've normalized it. So it is strange when, for example, we were getting ready to uh, go to the Blue Lagoon. I'd made reservations months before. And then, of course, the volcano erupts right next to it. The fissure opens. And every day I'm checking on the Blue Lagoon website. And they're saying things like, Oh, yes, there is currently flowing lava, but check back tomorrow. Like, what? <laughs> They're acting like it's like it's just a rainstorm. You know, like, well, I mean, it should be gone. Just check back tomorrow. You might, we might be open. I don't know. We'll see. Very nonchalant. So we never got close enough to that fissure. We spent the night before we left uh, in Keflavik to, we were going to try to find the fissure. I wanted to see it. And uh, we couldn't get anywhere near it. Because obviously the dumb people like us who have no experience with volcanoes are like, I'm going to walk over there and touch it, which happens and people die. But so we couldn't get near the place. They had it all locked off. So we go to our hotel, wake up in the morning, get in my car and drive to the airport 6 a.m. And I look up and I see this plume of smoke stretching up into the sky, all lit incredibly bright by what looked like an electric orange neon light so bright so bright and so unlike anything i've ever seen before i thought well that's fake so and also because there was no warning they had never said there was going to be i knew about the one five miles away or no 10 miles away i didn't know about the one two miles away from the hotel no one else seemed to really know about it either so I'm looking at it. We take the car into, you know, return the car. And we're like, is that a, that's not a volcano, is it? And the guy's like, no, not a volcano. Like, see, didn't think so. He's like, yeah, we have no volcanoes in Iceland. I was like, wait, you're being sarcastic. He's like, no, 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 I'm not being sarcastic. We don't have any volcanoes in Iceland. I'm like, okay, now I know you're being sarcastic. Is that a (laughs) volcano erupting right there? And he's like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. He's like, yeah. When did this happen? He goes like, oh, thirty minutes ago. Like, this just <laughs> happened. He's like, yeah. I was like, did y'all know? 
at that one spot. It happens a lot. Like it happens a lot. The earth splits open and molten rock spews forth into these like electric furnaces of like neon. Like that just happens occasionally. So yeah, and no one seemed to care. That's what blew my mind. And then we go to the ho- we go to the airport, and everyone in the airport, who's m- most of whom are not from Iceland, are up against the glass looking at <laughs> this wall of electric fire and smoke going up into the heavens like um <laughs> you know and looking at another and look at the icelanders who aren't even looking at it and who are just you know like on their phones and just doing their usual thing you know like yeah that happens around here and then they're like well what if it gets really really big like oh well then we'll deal with that we'll evacuate or something but that that was that was that. so this is how nonchalant they were about it at the back to the blue lagoon we checked in nine in the morning you know hand them your tickets and they're like okay here is your id bracelet this opens everything this works at the bar if the siren goes off you have to evacuate immediately don't bother to take your things we just have to leave immediately have a good time <laughs> like whoa you people have really yeah. normalized this I love Iceland. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's yeah. really, really, really beautiful. I mean, and the Icelanders—they're very laid back people. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> they got some good filmmakers over there too. We got to do an Icelandic movie on this sometime. Well, I don't um, they, they do a lot of shooting there because the, the landscape is like nothing yeah. else. A lot of films are shot yeah, and there they, because and they, and they have and they have experienced crew over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, real quickly, and then we got to go. Um, uh, I was in preparation to go to Iceland. I was looking up Iceland, Icelandic films, and I wanted to see something funny. So I said, I asked Google, I need an Icelandic comedy. Google returned the result. Did you mean Icelandic film? And I said, Icelandic comedic film. Yes. Ah, you meant Icelandic film? <laughs> So I was like, get more specific. Is there a funny Icelandic movie? Like, oh, here's one. And it was something about a man becoming a horse and a horse becoming a man. Because those people are really into horses. And then the other movie they suggested was called Godland, which is not a correct translation. The real translation of that film is God Forsaken. And it's this, and it's and it's and it's a historical drama about uh, an early missionary. He goes to Iceland to build a church, and the place beats the faith out of him. So by the end of the film, he's an atheist. <laughs> have you seen the one? Have you seen the documentary, the Icelandic documentary about the the guy who? I don't know if the filmmakers were Icelandic, but it's about the the guy in Iceland who has a he has a penis museum. <laughs> you told me about this. I haven't seen it. <laughs> And the one penis it's called the, the last, last member. member yeah and the last the one thing he do, doesn't didn't have in his in his museum was a human penis and so he started uh, he put out an ad i guess for would you like to leave would you like to donate your penis to the museum after you after you leave this world and it did kind of became there were multiple volunteers, and those two guys were in the running, and they and they started competing for it <laughs> to be the to be the one chosen. <laughs> of course, 
Your <laughs> classic big dick contest, right? <laughs> there can be only one. My dick belongs in the museum. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that has to be the end. Yeah, totally. My dick belongs in the museum has to be the last words yeah. of this episode. <laughs> the Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music written by Jonathan Myberg and performed by Brandon Edgens. Until next time, have a good time. My tech belongs in a museum. <laughs>